Well, I welcome you to this uh, second session on learning from the Puritans, this time on the subject of worship. I want to read with you from John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 4, verses uh, 19 through 24. The woman, woman of Samaria, saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes... And now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, bless thy word that we've just read. And do bless us as we talk now about this critical subject of worship which thy servant John Calvin called the soul of a righteous life. Help us to be faithful in organizing worship in our churches in a way that is tethered and grounded to and in the Holy Scriptures so that we don't do our own pleasure, but we worship according to the New Testament paradigm set forth before us in thy word. So come and bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, John Calvin, the great reformer of Geneva, said that worship is one of the twin pillars of Christianity, the other being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Puritan worship, at its core, is Reformed worship, Biblical Reformed worship. William Perkins, one of the fathers of the Puritan movement, gave this definition of worship. The worship or service of God is when upon the right knowledge of God, we freely give him the honor that is proper to him in our hearts according to his own will. Well, I want to... Uh, provide you in this address with uh, three or four things. We want to look at the foundation of Puritan worship, the, the rule of it, a few of the mechanics of it, and then the spirit of it. So foundation, rule, mechanics, and spirit. First, the foundation. Stephen Sharnock, a gifted Puritan pastor, 17th century, and theologian, said, we cannot worship God unless we consider him worthy of worship. And we cannot consider him worthy of worship unless we truly know him savingly. And we cannot truly know him savingly apart from Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so Sharnak said, <coughs> true worship involves three things. First of all, 
it involves the foundation of the gospel itself. Foundation of Puritan worship is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan minister known for his peaceable spirit, wrote a book called Gospel Worship. That's the most famous Puritan title on worship ever written. And he said, in worship we draw near to God, and no man can come unto him but through Christ. So everyone owes God worship, for nature itself reveals God as the creator that obligates us to glorify him. Worship is God's right by creation, the Puritan said. In worship, we're simply giving our creator what we owe to him as creatures. But since our fall in Adam, no man can give that to God apart from Jesus Christ. How shall then they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14 says. So we must know God both in his nature and in his covenant of grace as our God through Christ Jesus if we're going to truly worship him. Puritan Thomas Watson put it best, I think. He said, in every part of our worship, we must present God, every part of our worship, we must present Christ to God in the arms of faith. It's the only way to approach God. Without the gospel of Jesus, our worship will fall into one idolatry or another idolatry. When we do not know God rightly, we do not worship him rightly, but then the worship of idols takes its place. Idols in our minds. So Galatians 4 puts it this way, Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. So that's number one. The foundation of worship is the gospel of Jesus. Number two, we must know God and we must know ourselves as the gospel portrays us. We must not only know Jesus, we must know ourselves. We are sinners worthy of damnation, but in Christ we are adopted sons of God according to his great mercies. Guilty consciences do not draw sinners to worship God with hope in the face of Jesus. But by faith in the gospel, we worship God in Jesus as forgiven children of the Father, adopted into the family of God. Arthur Hildesim, a great Puritan preacher, said, The better a man is persuaded and assured of God's fatherly love to him in Christ, the better service he shall do unto him, and the better and more acceptably he will worship him. And number three. The foundation of worship is not only the gospel and the realization of who we are in ourselves without that gospel, but who we are also in and through the gospel. But thirdly, true worship is a spiritual sense or an experiential knowledge of the grace and love of God occasioned 
by a sight of our sins and our spiritual misery and drawing us, therefore, into the true worship of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is our worship leader. And it's only when we are in Christ as poor needy sinners trusting in him, washing our prayers, as Calvin put it, with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be truly worshiping God. So the foundation of Puritan worship is simply this, knowing experientially a reconciled God through the gospel of Jesus Christ as poor sinners saved by grace. Now, what about the rule of Puritan worship? That's number two. Well, the Puritans believed in what they called the regulative principle of worship, the RPW, is sometimes called today. The regulative principle of worship. So by rule, they meant what controls, what regulates, what fills what we say and do in worship. And for the Puritans, that was easy to answer. Since they strove to order all of life by Scripture, it was natural for them to be convicted that all of worship must be ordered by Scripture. Since worship is service given to the King of Kings for his pleasure and his honor, and that King is supreme, that in Christ, that is, this King supremely honors God's Word, and therefore we must supremely honor God's Word, so all our worship must be in obedience to that Word. Now, as the Puritans saw it, the basic form of biblical worship, therefore, was threefold. Number one, the Word. The Word. Or you could say the Bible. Which is foundational. Number two, the sacraments. And number three, prayer. They said, those are basically the three major parts of worship in the New Testament. But each of those is broken into two parts. So you really have six things going on. Here they're using the Ramas method again. The word, break it into two parts, the word read, the word preached. The sacraments, obvious break into two parts, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In prayer, Spoken and sung. They viewed singing as praying back to God. Praising him, supplicating him, confessing our sin, and so on. Now, the Puritans found this regulative principle taught all throughout Scripture. I read one text for you in John 4, where the idea here is you don't know what you worship, but Really, you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. That is according to his word. Uh, you find that also uh, in, in Deuteronomy 12, 32. What things soever I command you to do in worship, do it. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. 
We find it again in Numbers 15, 39. Again in Matthew 15, verse 9, quoting Isaiah 29, 13. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And Romans 12, 12, Paul says that reasonable worship requires knowing God's will. Now at the bottom, at the very bottom of this regulative principle is this deeply grounded conviction, this profound sense of the holiness of God. The Lord killed two of Aaron's sons for offering him incense in a way he had not authorized. You see, God cares about how we worship him. We must not add to it what the Bible says. We must not subtract from what the Bible says. We must simply, joyfully obey. So the word governs all of worship. But worship is also saturated with the word. So the Puritan said, in worship, we don't ask the question, what do I feel like doing? Or what would I like to do? That's beside the point. The goal isn't to come to worship to please you or to feel good about you. The, word, the idea of worship is to come and worship. Worth-ship. You know, it's actually... A, the, 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 the Greek word for worship is pros kineo, two words. Pros means toward, and kineo means to kiss. So the idea of worship is that you bow down before God in all your affections. It includes, of course, your mind and your soul and all your affections. Your whole being goes out to the object of worship, which is God. You're there to please God, to honor God, to glorify God, not for yourself. And God is most glorified, isn't he? through his special revelation, his word. So in worship, the Puritan said, we pray the word, we sing the word, we read the word, we preach the word, and we see the word in the sacraments. Now let's look at just uh, one area of the mechanics of Puritan worship. We don't have time to do, do it all, but one area. Let's look at singing, singing. In Colossians 3.16, the Puritans, in obedience to that text, employed an ancient form of worship, largely forgotten in the modern church, which is the singing of the book of Psalms, Psalms found in the Bible. And though some Reformed Christians continue to object against corporate singing in the church, the Puritans generally loved to sing the Psalms to glorify God because Psalms are so theocentric. And basically they argue that God has given us a manual for singing in the Bible itself. And since they believed that nearly every Psalm was Christocentric, they thought that the singing of Psalms was to sing a very Christ-centered hymn book. William Ames said, and Ames was a very influential student of Perkins, the, the father of Puritanism, the singing of psalms has the following advantages over merely reading them. It brings a kind of sweet delight to godly minds. It enables a distinct and fixed meditation upon them, and it results in more mutual edification. Now, there were a few Puritans that said there were other hymns in the Bible that we could sing as well. Most said we should stick to the psalms. This is God's, God's hymn book in the Bible. 
John Cotton, however, said there were certain other psalms or songs that we could sing in the Bible, such as the Song of Mary. Uh, he also argued that the psalms should be sung without instrumental music, believing that instruments were used in the Old Dispensation, but we don't read of them in the New Testament, and therefore they should be abandoned. Now, there's various views uh, on that, of course, as you, as you well know. Uh, the Dutch Puritans said, no, groups of people need some instrumental accompaniment. This is an incidental in worship. As long as you don't focus on the instrument at all, and don't just sit still for a while and just listen to the instrument play, because then it becomes an essential part of worship, not an incidental. Musical accompaniment's okay, and they usually used a, an organ or a piano or something like that and to keep the people on tune. So in the Dutch culture, the Dutch so-called Puritan movement called the Dutch Further Reformation, the organ was almost always used. And uh, the Puritans, most of them, rejected that. So there was a difference on this so-called incidental. But the crux of the Reformed and Puritan argument for singing the Psalms of the Bible was Colossians 3.16. And the parallel statement in Ephesians 5.19, speak to yourselves or one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So John Cotton, for example, argued that the words psalms, hymns, and songs here are the very titles of the songs of David in the psalms. Therefore, they all mean, it meant sing these kinds of psalms, those kinds of psalms, and the other kinds of psalms. Sing the psalms is basically what the text is saying, Cotton argued. And these are worthy songs to be sung because they're delivered to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself, Cotton writes. Well, some objected that the Holy Spirit also leads men to compose spiritual songs in the contemporary church. Cotton replied that ordinary men led by the Spirit may, may error, may err, but the prophets carried by the Spirit as they wrote the scriptures were inspired and cannot err. So the Puritans believed that songs of mere human origin can have their place in the home like we would call the great classic hymns today, have their place in the home, but or in society, or in a Christian school, or maybe in a weeknight service in the church where you, it's not an official church service, but in official worship, they said, quote, our devotion is best secured when our songs come from divine inspiration, it is from the inspired scriptures. Now, Paul Baines is a Puritan who said he really liked the organ being used in the service because he felt it brought honor to God in enabling people to, to sing better, but he could understand where people were opposed to it because it wasn't mandated in the New Testament. So a little bit of difference there, but the majority of the Puritans the English Puritans, at least, had no instruments in worship, 
They wanted to hear each other's voices as the corporate family of God, singing praise to God. And they sang the Psalms. Now, I don't know what you do in your church and in many American churches today. More hymns are sung, man-made hymns, than, than, than psalms. Our particular church, we kind of use the John Cotton approach. We sing the psalms, then we sing a few other special hymns from the Bible, like the Song of Mary and the Song of Simeon, and so on. But whatever we do, whatever we do in our churches in this regard, I think the underlying principle is to make sure that we don't just sing pieces of music because they sound good. We've got to sing only what is strictly biblical. It really carries the message of the Bible. And when we do that and we sing it in accord with the, the lyrics so that we're not singing to a different beat, for example, than the lyrics are portraying. You see, then we're honoring God. Kelvin made the point, and many Puritans did too, both the music and the lyrics must mesh with each other. And so that's how the Puritans would, would look at, would look at uh, this uh, section of worship service we call singing. Now, a few more things maybe about the preaching dimension, which I didn't have time to do in the last lecture. I might bring in here. The Puritans generally, I said, preach about 60 to 70 minutes. Sometimes you hear these longer stories of uh, Puritans preaching much, much longer. That was very rare, very rare. Uh, John Howe one time preached for two hours and 15 minutes and then prayed for 30 minutes. But it was a time of great opening and freedom for him in preaching. And the people just sat spellbound. In fact, while he was praying, the story is that his wife came up because he was, she was, he was sweating so profusely, she thought he was going to have a, a heart attack. And so she um, came up and she took a handkerchief and she wiped his forehead and his hair. And, and he just kept right on praying and she went back to her seat, and he just kept on praying. <laughs> but that's a un very unusual story. Normally, a Puritan had an hourglass in front of him on the pulpit, usually of sand or salt, and he'd turn it over as he started to preach. And when it was all done, that was a sign to him, he better, he better quit preaching quite quickly. And most Puritans would preach. They'd preach 60 minutes, but seldom go over 70. So... Um, that rumor is, is, is quite false. Now, in our circles here in America, in my particular denomination, we generally preach about 55. Now, most churches in America, probably 40 to 45. You see, but it depends on the culture also of your people. My people are used to listening to 55-minute sermons, so that gives me more preaching time. I can do more counseling, more, more uh, applications from the pulpit. And that's wonderful in, from my perspective. But you can't go into a church where they've been used to 35-minute preaching and suddenly preach 60 minutes. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. The Puritans would say that too. Now, the Puritans stressed a lot about how you come to church, how you listen to the sermon, and what you do when you go home with it. 
I've actually written a whole book on that called The Family at Church. But the idea of the Puritan mind was, since this is the event of the week, and the Lord's Day is the market day of the soul, it's very, very high in their estimation. You prepare already on Saturday night, meditating, maybe reading the passage where the minister is going to be preaching from, if you know it, and talking about spiritual things together as a family. And you get your soul prepared for worship. And you come, you come not the last minute, but you come a little bit before church starts, and you're praying, you're very quiet in church, you're praying, anticipating God's blessing, you're not chattering with people. No, no, you're coming in the presence of Almighty God to worship Him, spirit and truth. And then they taught their children how to listen. And uh, they would talk to their children about the sermon on the way home or in family worship throughout the week. And they try to retain it. And the father would try to retell the sermon to the very young children. They took preaching, you see, so seriously. They said a person never leaves the house of God as they came. You either hardened the more out of unbelief or you're softened by the grace of faith. What you mean said, people listen usually in one of four ways. They may be like sponges that soak up both the good and the bad. Or like hourglasses that let out one ear, what they take in with the other. Or like wine bags that keep the dregs but let go of the good wine. Or like sieves that let go of what is worthless but retain what is good. The last is the best way to listen. Let go of what is worthless, retain what is good. Now, when the Puritans preached, they generally had three parts to their sermon. The first part was exegetical and expositional. Second part, which we talked about last hour, was doctrinal and didactic. And the third part was applicatory. And in these three parts, you see, they would have applications throughout, but they would conclude with a number of uses, as Richard Baxter put it, to screw the truth into the minds of their hearers and work Christ into their affections. Now, thirdly, what about, what about conversing the word of Christ? Now, this wasn't in the worship service itself, but as an outflow of the worship service. The Puritans believe that you should worship with your family in the home. And you should worship among God's people getting together in small groups to talk about the ways of the Lord, to talk about sermons. For them, it was kind of like um, a small group study that would continue to benefit from the sermons preached on the Sunday before. And so they called it holding conference, where the people of God would get together and talk about the things of God. But also they called it family worship, when it was just your own family. And so what they did was they said, there are great benefits of holy conferences, where the people of God spend time talking to each other. Often they'd meet on Wednesday in the middle of the week to discuss matters of the soul. They keep each other accountable. They sometimes even shared confidential struggles. And they would allow people to join their group 
if those people were sincerely seeking knowledge and love. Often these groups had a leader. Sometimes it was an elder of the church to provide supervision so they didn't degenerate. Um, sometimes the groups did degenerate and sort of became churches within churches and it didn't go well. Uh, but most of the time, these small groups that aimed to talk over the sermons, talk over spiritual things, were an asset for the people of God who attended them. Now, what they did is in family worship was, was fourfold. First, there was the reading of Scripture. Then the father, with the assistance of the mother, would have a time of instructing from the Scripture, taking the Word of God and applying it to the hearts of their, their children. That was difficult for some fathers, but they got used to it. The ministers helped train the fathers. And in some places, not all, but in some places, family worship was such a necessity that elders and ministers could actually put families under discipline with a father refused to do it because they said the father is committing a great sin by not having family worship every day with his family. That's the most important thing the father has to do, to teach his family how to worship God, since worshiping God is the most important activity of life. That's the way they would reason. So you, you read the Bible. You then talk to your children, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on how the conversation goes, asking them questions taking the truths of what you read, bringing it home to their minds, their heads, heart and hands. If there's comfort in the passage, you comfort them. If there's instruction, you instruct them. If there's warning, you warn them. And then you go to prayer. And in prayer, you remember the needs of the children. You Puritans use something like we would call today the Acts formula. In America, we call it the Acts formula. A, for adoration, you adore God, tell him how great he is. C, confession of sin, you confess your sins also as a family. T, thanksgiving, you pour out your heart in thanksgiving to God for all his goodness. And then S, supplications, you pour out your needs to God. And then the fourth part of family worship always was singing. And the Puritans got that from Psalm 118, verse 15, that the you could hear the singing from the tents of the righteous. So this was not tabernacle singing or, or temple singing. This was singing in family worship. And so those four parts of family worship are an extension, the Puritans would say, so that your home becomes like a little church. It's not a formal church worship service, of course, but it's, it's an extension. So you teach your children how to worship God in the public church by teaching them how to worship God in private family worship, first of all. Now, in America today, we have, we have spent five years, uh, five years working on a, a Reformed Notes Bible. I actually have it here with me. I, this is my pulpit Bible as well. And in addition to Reformed Notes on the bottom of each page, course, this is all in English. We also have a section at the end of each chapter 
in which we say thoughts for personal and family worship. And usually there's two or three, and they end with a question like these do here in Acts 19 I turned open to. And because some fathers have a difficult time knowing how to generate conversation, what we've done over a five-year period, and this Bible's been out for a few years now, is we've given to fathers the main lessons for their family from this particular chapter. So the father just reads this out loud. It usually takes about one minute to read, maybe a minute and a half at the most, and then asks the question at the end of that little reading, and then the wife and the children jump in and try to answer it, and there's discussion and so on. Um, so I regret we didn't do this many years before, but it's been, it's been sold by, by tens of thousands now uh, of people are using this, and we're, we're thrilled with that. And it does change the lives of families when they engage in family worship. For the Puritans, this was automatic, automatic. You'd never thought about uh, not doing family worship. In fact, they did it twice a day, usually, in the morning uh, before they went off to work, and then the evening after the, the, the evening meal. So the Reformation Heritage KJV Study Bible, that's the name of it, Reformation Heritage KJV Study Bible, and you'll find there a guide to family worship. We've also published it as a separate little, just extracting the family worship sections if you use a different version of the Bible. That's simply called Family Worship Bible Guide, and you can get that from heritagebooks.org. And uh, it, can, it can transform your family. And you can get your people in your church to, to, um, to use it as well, uh, if, if possible. And you'll find it a great, a great blessing. So for Puritans, you see, worship was a way of life. You worship God in church. You worship God in the family. And then you also had this private worship. Private worship, where you had your time alone with God. Most Puritans would pray aloud at that time. They'd read aloud. They wanted to do everything aloud because they didn't want their mind to wander. And as Luther said, they want even the devil to hear them because the devil's a defeated foe. So they took seriously also private worship. In fact, in private worship, family worship, and public worship, you combine all that leads us to our concluding point of this talk, the spirit, the spirit of Puritan worship. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So New Testament worship is not about holy places so much as it's such as the temple in Jerusalem, so much as about holy hearts worshiping the triune God. And the Puritans recognized that, that the essence of worship is inward and spiritual. And they didn't want anything in their building to distract that. So the buildings are plain, uh, simple, like, like they're preaching. And so the principle of worship we offer to God comes from the work of the Spirit in us to make us holy. And John Owen reminds us that people may participate in religious worship not only with diligence but also delight and yet worship for the wrong reasons. They do not have delight in God through Christ's own rights, but instead they delight in the outward pleasures of worship, such as the eloquent speaker. 
engaging stories, sermon illustrations, pleasant music, impressive ceremonies. Or perhaps they just have a guilty conscience and gives them a sense of self-justification. Or they might worship with joy because it improves their reputation in the eyes of men. But you see, to the Puritans, all of this was anathema. God has commanded us to worship him spiritually. Spiritual worship is not a passive experience. It requires concentration, exertion, diligence, striving with all your might to serve God with his single-minded focus upon his glory. Stephen Charnock said that all our thoughts ought to be ravished with God in our worship as our treasure, not easily distracted by every feather and bubble from this world. Jeremiah Burroughs said, when we come to worship God, we would sanctify God's name. We must have high thoughts of God. We must look upon God as he is upon his throne in majesty and in glory. And they said, one way to worship God, therefore, is to fix your mind on the attributes of God, his power, his grace, patience, mercy, faithfulness, purity. Tune your hearts, says Paul Baines. Tune your hearts to the attributes of God. But most of all, exercise faith in Christ. That's the heart of worship. Love for God can only live and thrive in the context of approaching God by faith in the mediator. So, the spirit of Puritan worship was a spirit of patience also toward the church. Love for God overflows in love for imperfect people. No one is perfect in the church. You don't go to worship God in church because everybody makes you happy there and because everyone's perfect there. You go to God as a bunch of needy sinners, saved by grace, and you go to worship the high and holy and living God. Well, let me conclude by saying that you don't need to agree with every detail in the way the Puritans worshipped, perhaps, but you do need to admire their zeal for, for worship for pure worship, because God is zealous for the glory of his name. Jeremiah Burroughs said in his famous book, Gospel Worship, the glory of God's name is a million times more precious to God than the lives of a million people. Yet God's zeal for his glory has expressed itself in the sending of his son to die for sinners. And what delights the father more than to have his children gathered close to him. So we are to come to worship with a sense of holy expectation, the Puritan said. True worship gives God his rightful place in creation, in the church, in our families, in our lives, and in our private relationship with him. True worship is occupied with God himself and with his glory. It glorifies God when we are satisfied with him when we delight in him and when we love and obey him. True worship falls hopelessly in love with God. Ten minutes of true worship contains more joy than the world can provide in ten years. True worship prepares us for endless worship in eternity. And that's why when someone asked the Puritan John Preston on his deathbed when he was dying, if he was ready to go, 
He said, yes. And he said, well, are you not afraid? No, he said, I shall but change my place. I shall not change my company. In other words, I've learned to worship here on earth with the people of God. And I'm going to worship with the people of God in heaven. So what about you, my friend? Have you kept company with the living God and his saints now while you are on earth? Are you enjoying his presence in the worship of his church? Worship that coincides with what he commands in his word. Can you say, worship for me is a foretaste of heaven, where Christ and through him, the triune God, is all in in all. That's where our souls want to camp, Christ, all and in all. And through him, the triune God, that's the purpose of worship. Worship him. And train your people, by the grace of God, to do that in spirit and in truth. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much that we can come to worship with a sense of holy expectation, expecting great blessings from a great God. Please bless thy worship to our souls, that we would, we would grow, as one of the Puritans would put it, in, in a sweet and blessed familiarity between thee and our own soul in public worship. Oh, that we would worship thee with all that is within us. To thy own glory, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.